The botanist walked alone into the cotton field on an early summer day. Despite the trials of his early life and education, today was not a day to dwell on the past. Today, the soil of the South was on his mind. As he walked through the field, he could see the problems that all the excessive cotton had done to the dirt in the crops of the southern United States. He got down on his haunches and rubbed the dirt between his fingers. He knew plants and dirt better than anyone in his circle, and as he looked at the dirt in his hands, he began to understand what needed to happen. He was unaware of the trials yet to come, but it didn't matter. The botanist had faced trials before. Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Over the next five episodes, we'll take you on a journey to discover five of the crucial virtues of life through the men who demonstrated them, not just with words, but with action. Welcome to Episode 5, The Innovation of George Washington Carver. Hosted by Scott Einig with special guest, Carver biographer and social historian, Gary R. Kremer. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short yet chooses not to ally his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is innovation. Innovation is the creation and development of a new product, idea, process, or service with the aim of improving efficiency, effectiveness, or competitive advantage. Some of history's greatest innovations begin as things or ideas the general public or those in power barely understood at all. Yet in time, these things would go on to revolutionize the product's industry, or in some cases, the world. Innovation is a restless virtue. It is never complacent. It is always looking to improve. Men who display a gift for innovation are also restless and unsatisfied because they see a better future and work to make it a reality. Such was the case with George Washington Carver, a man of many talents whose innovations remain as misunderstood as the man himself. In this episode, we will see a glimpse of the true George Washington Carver and how he innovated less for his own personal gain, but for the benefit of all. George Washington Carver came into the world around the time slavery was ending in America. Due to the turmoil of the end of the Civil War, his exact date of birth has never been known for sure, though he is believed to have been born in the early 1860s. As an infant born into slavery, Carver had a tumultuous start to life. His father had died in an accident before he was born, and his mother had been purchased by Missouri farmers Moses and Susan Carver. One week after his birth, George, his sister, and his mother were kidnapped by slave traders who still roamed the state. Moses hired a neighbor to retrieve them, but only baby George was found. 
Upon being brought home, the Carvers raised George as one of their own, even giving him their last name. As the boy grew, the Carvers came to see that he was a very bright and gifted child. I think he was encouraged to, uh, to develop his mind. And in fact, Moses and Susan Carver were concerned about, the, the, I think they recognized that George was a very special kid, uh, that he was intuitive, that he was bright. Uh, Susan taught him as best she could with the few books the family had. They wanted him to be able to go to school, and he could not go to school in the area in which he lived because Missouri law did not require a school for black children to be built or established unless there were, at one time it was 15, another time it was 20, school-age black children in the post-Civil War period. As a young boy, Carver displayed the beginnings of what would fuel his later innovations. He showed an interest in plants and kept specimens in collections. He also showed a talent for the arts that he would eventually develop further. Despite his natural talents and the basic skills he learned from the Carvers, George wanted to further his education. Though he faced the setbacks of not having a school to attend close to where he lived and the country's still prevalent racism, George would not be deterred. At a very young age, he received permission to leave the Carver household to find the education he so deeply wanted. So George discovers that there is this school in uh, Newton County's uh, seat, a uh, town called Neosho, and he just heads out on his own, roughly an eight mile journey. You know, and, and we don't know his exact age, but he was probably an adolescent, might've been 12, 13, 14 years old and he heads out on his own, driven by this desire for formal education. And it's hard for me to imagine a kid just putting all his earthly possessions in a bag and heading out on his own, walking to a destination really unknown for eight miles in search of an education. Again, it's, it's a remarkable gesture of hope and faith that everything's gonna work out. And, and of course it did. Carver ended up in Kansas, where he remained for more than a decade. To earn a living, he performed various household duties he had most certainly learned from Susan Carver. Sewing, laundry, ironing, housekeeping, and the like. He eventually gained a high school diploma, but soon discovered that the opportunities to attend college in Kansas as a black man did not exist. He relocated to Iowa, where he was taken in by a white couple. Seeing his talents, they encouraged him to pursue a college education. He spent a period of time in Indianola's Simpson College, in which he studied music and the arts. One of the female professors expressed concern to Carver that he might not be successful pursuing an artistic career as a black man. But, having seen Carver's skills with plants, she encouraged him to go to Iowa State, where her father was a professor of botany. George took her advice and, upon enrolling, became the college's only black student. His time at Iowa State would prove the gateway to one of the most important relationships of his career. At that time, Iowa State was the premier institution for the study of what was being called scientific agriculture at the time. So he had remarkable professors 
And it was that training that caught the attention of Booker T. Washington and that caused Washington to solicit him to come down to Alabama and run his agricultural school. Booker T. Washington, the primary founder, principal, and president of Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, had been looking to establish an agricultural department in his university. He embarked on a mission to find the brightest in the field to come to Tuskegee to teach and serve as faculty members. By the time Washington learned of him, Carver had earned a Master of Agriculture degree, received widespread recognition for his brilliance in botany, and had even taught other students. In spite of his high standing at Iowa State and other numerous teaching opportunities, Carver accepted Washington's offer and boarded a train to Alabama in 1896. When he arrived, he was shocked and dismayed at the vastly different landscape and farmland around him. As Carver stated later, my train left the golden wheat fields and the tall green corn of Iowa for the acres of cotton. Nothing but cotton. Not much evidence of scientific farming anywhere. Everything looked hungry. The land, the cotton, the cattle, and the people. Carver had never been to the South. When Carver goes South in 1896, he's, he's baffled and dumbfounded by the South. It's the first time he's been around that many Black people. It's... Uh, he, he sees an almost arid region that uh, the, the land has, is nearly destroyed by overcropping and the lack of crop rotation, the reliance on cotton. Upon arriving at Tuskegee, where he would remain for the rest of his life, Carver was surprised at the lack of resources available to him, even though the department was brand new. He told Washington that in order to do his job correctly, he required two rooms, one for himself and one for his botanical equipment. Some of his fellow faculty members resented this, thinking it wasn't right for a black man with a white degree to be making such demands, or that he had the right to his own room while most of them had roommates. Carver never stated it outright, but his requests suggest that because he was the school's most highly educated faculty member, he thought he deserved to be treated with respect and to have comfortable accommodations. His constant frustrations with the limited provisions would persist up until Washington's untimely death in 1915. Carver may have resigned a half a dozen times over the next decade. He would get frustrated. He would write Carver or Washington a letter saying, you know, I've had it. You guys can't provide me what I need. Here's my letter of resignation. And I think Washington knew he was dealing with a temperamental artist type and he would just stick the letters in his desk drawer and in a few days Carver would forget about it and they'd go on for a while and, until the next battle. The men also differed greatly in their approach to getting things done. Carver spent a lot of time in his own head while Washington was always wanting results and information about what was being accomplished. There were periods of time where Washington would get frustrated with the way Carver was conducting business. He would send letters offering suggestions on what to do, which Carver proceeded to ignore. Washington became so irritated that one day he wrote a letter clarifying what his suggestions actually were. So finally one day Washington writes him a letter and he says, Mr. Carver, you should understand that my requests are politely worded demands. You know, like you, you don't get it. When I, say, when I tell you, when I suggest something to you, I'm not really suggesting it. I'm telling you, this is what you need to do. And it just went over Carver's head. 
Over the years, Washington was constantly reminded of the reality that the man he had solicited for his institute was very different from the other members of his staff, and above all, very different from himself. Both men saw the world and their place within it in very contrasting ways. Washington had memories of being a slave, while Carver had always been friends with whites. These two men with vastly different upbringings and personalities had a respectful relationship that was nonetheless filled with tension. Washington was very important in his life, but in, in all honesty, I would have to say that Carver and Booker T. Washington were very different people and they were always at odds. The, the, there was a constant running battle between the two of them. Washington was a practical man and Carver was a, was a dreamer and an idealist. Carver was always asking for more, more resources, better equipment, better facilities. And Washington was the master of make-do. You know, he's telling Carver, this is the best we've got, and you know, kind of quit complaining. So it was a very difficult relationship. Washington knew this guy was very special, and he tried to accommodate him the best he could. But Carver, Carver was not an easy man to live with. And he had tense relationships with many of the other faculty members who thought he was a, a bit of a prima donna. What was also apparent in his time at Tuskegee was the spiritual side of his approach to work and to life. When he arrived at the school, he did not view his time there as just a job or something to help him earn a living. He had what could be described as a missionary zeal to help what he referred to as his people, or, as he famously put, the man farthest down. Despite having a vastly different upbringing from the average black farmer, Carver understood how poor they were. His work he set out to do at Tuskegee came with a sense of responsibility and obligation, a religious belief that God had appointed him to help those most in need. Along with his divine mission was his belief about the nature of science and faith. To Carver, a man could not innovate with just science or faith alone. In Carver's view, neither could exist without the other. They worked in tandem with each other to produce a desired result. I take the position that you cannot understand Carver without understanding his spirituality. He would go out early in the morning before dawn and, and as he put it, to commune with nature and to visit with God. He believed in knowledge. He believed in science. He did not separate science and religion. He was adamant that he thought that science and religion were simply different ways of achieving truth. He gave a talk in New York in the early 1920s in a church in which he said some of these similar kinds of things. And the next day, the New York Times wrote this editorial. I think it was titled, uh, Men of Science Don't Talk That Way. And so he writes this letter to the editor. He never sent it, but it's in his papers where he, he kind of documents his own training. Like, you know, I studied this and I studied under some of the best botanists in the world and I've read this and I've read that, and I know the scientific method, but I still believe that my approach to science is legitimate. He wouldn't back off. You know, that was the way he conducted his whole life. His belief that science and faith were intertwined and that God was always speaking to him through his creation was most apparent in his Sunday school teachings. 
A young girl recalled years later about a time when Carver visited her school and how, instead of giving an ordinary talk that would likely be forgotten after it was over, he made his points with the very plants he was studying. He came to this uh, lecture hall with a sweet potato and he placed a sweet potato on the podium and he started off his light lecture by saying, sweet potato, sweet potato, what are you? And he proceeded to talk about what the sweet potato told him it possessed in terms of characteristics and qualities and so forth. And, and this woman said, you know, initially I was shocked and I, I said to myself, who ever heard of a sweet potato talking to anybody? But she said, as I listened to this man, I began to understand what he meant. And he did that sort of thing all the time. Carver's love of science and faith was equally matched by his love for children. He would often travel to the families of Tuskegee faculty members who had children just to be around them. Often he would do drawings of landscapes as presents for them during these visits. To many of these kids, just being with Carver made a lasting impression. I interviewed a woman whose parents worked on the Tuskegee campus, and she kind of grew up on the campus as a little girl. She would just go hang out with Dr. Carver in his lab, and, and she told wonderful stories about his attentiveness and his, his kindness to her. I interviewed a 93-year-old man in his uh, bathrobe in his kitchen who had been in Carver's Sunday School class in 1950. You know, he said, he said that was a wonderful experience. He said, he, he said, old Carver, he taught me about old Zacharias skimming down that sycamore tree and Joshua in the, I mean, he just went on and on. <laughs> and he was telling me about an experience he had 70 some years earlier and what a transformational experience it had been in his life. Just knowing Carver and being exposed to him and being around him. Carver's first decade at Tuskegee was hardly smooth sailing. In spite of being surrounded by prominent members of his own race in a prestigious institution, while heading a department devoted to a subject in which he was exceptionally skilled. In addition to his clashes with Washington and the staff, he had to teach, keep the toilets clean, manage two farms the school owned, and attend to various other academic duties. These things took time away from what Carver really wanted to pursue, developing innovative agriculture that would help southern black farmers and heal the soil erosion caused by the innumerable cotton farms. The farms around Tuskegee were largely owned by white farmers and farmed by blacks. Because cotton was such a lucrative crop, the landowners exploited the land to grow as much as possible. The excessive growth had severely damaged the soil and prevented nutrients from being replenished. The vast majority of the land in the area where Carver lived, where Tuskegee was located, was owned by white farmers who engaged African-American farmers as sharecroppers and as tenant farmers. And the cash crop was cotton. And so they uh, exploited every square inch of the land to try to produce as much revenue from the cotton crop as they could. They were not fertilizing the soil. 
Harvard quickly realized this. So he began to try to encourage them, first of all, to replenish the soil through natural fertilizers, uh, animal waste, but also what he referred to as the muck from the swamp, what essentially what we would call today composting material. Though Carver faced this problem perennially, he nonetheless pursued it constantly and was always looking for ways to innovate and make the farming process better for everyone. One of his techniques was a portable laboratory known as the Jessup Wagon. He would take it directly to the farmers with the purpose of instructing them how to rotate crops and how to replenish the soil with natural fertilizers that came directly from other kinds of crops. Carver took the wagon to an estimated 2,000 farmers in its first month of service, dispensing advice and farm equipment as he went. It was from this problem of southern crop rotation that Carver came to his most well-known innovation, the peanut. He famously discovered over 300 different ways to use peanuts to create multiple items, such as axle grease, flour, paint, cosmetics, wood stains, paper, face cream, and lotions. Along with his numerous uses for the peanut, Carver also understood that it was something that could improve the poor diets of the black farmers. In spite of the racial politics involving the black and white farmers, Carver still worked tirelessly to promote his methods, sometimes up to 17 hours a day. Though not all his peanut innovations were wholly original, successful, or went into wide use, they nonetheless demonstrate the lengths Carver went to in an effort to help as many people as possible. The peanut was uh, initially a legume that was seen as a way of providing some of this green fertilizer for the soil. It, the, the other thing he was trying to do was to improve the diet of poor black and white Southerners. You know, they were primarily eating hominy, corn products, and fatback. And he was trying to introduce other sources of protein in their diet, like the peanut, and also trying to introduce a much more diverse diet. And, and that's what drives his search for multiple uses of peanut. In some ways, the Great Depression was a godsend for Carver because Carver was an expert on teaching people how to make do with limited resources. The pamphlets that he produced during the World War I and during the Depression were aimed at the general audience. You know, how to make uh, flour out of something other than wheat how to make coffee out of something other than coffee if you couldn't get coffee, that sort of thing. Carver was not simply showing farmers that peanuts were a viable crop, but how to get the most out of them. At the time Carver was developing his work with peanuts, the peanut was widely considered a lowly plant. Many were unaware of just how useful the plant could be, not just for its dietary provision, but for what it could do to farmland. The peanut was not even classified as a crop in the United States. This changed in 1921 when Carver famously spoke before the Ways and Means Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives on behalf of the fledgling peanut industry. There, there's the famous um, testimony he gave in 1921 to the House Ways and Means Committee in support of a peanut tariff. And uh, the committee is chaired by a Southerner. And, you know, there are racial jibes. He starts putting his things out and and this guy says, well, do you want a watermelon to go with that? And that, that kind of stuff. 
Though the committee was expecting a barely educated outdoorsman, they were very surprised to see the gentle, plain-spoken man of science dressed in an old green-blue suit standing before them. Carver proceeded to share his findings about how valuable the peanut could be. The mocking remarks and jabs began to cease as Carver shared his knowledge. He was originally supposed to speak only 10 minutes, but the committee was so engrossed with his presentation that he was given more time. By the end of his speech, he was given a standing ovation and the peanut tariff was granted. As a result, the peanut became one of America's most widespread crops by 1940. In addition to bringing awareness to the value of the peanut, the speech resulted in another surprising opportunity. After that 1921 testimony, he became kind of a folk hero. And that's when the YMCA and the Congress on Interracial Cooperation, both of which were headquartered in the South, decided to engage him to do a speaking tour throughout the South to YMCA camps that were being attended by teenage, white teenage boys, who of course are the descendants of slave owners. And that's when he began to go around the South and to speak to these young boys who would subsequently become his very close friends. This opportunity he had to speak to the young YMCA members highlights an aspect of Carver that is largely unknown. One of his Tuskegee duties was teaching, of which he did not have a personal affinity. But despite his dislike of the job, his students loved him deeply. Carver wrote many letters in his life, and his correspondence with the various students showed just how much they mattered to him. You know, they, they talked about him in such personal terms. He nurtured them. You know, how you doing in your schoolwork? How you doing with this? How you doing with that? Uh, many of his Tuskegee students in their letters to him referred to him as dad. Uh, they told him about their, their girlfriend problems. They told him about their money problems. He loaned them money. It, it's just, just a remarkable relationship that he had. When Carver made a friend, that was a friend for life. You know, he not only remained friends with them and corresponded with them, when they died, he kept corresponding with their children. The correspondence, uh, between him and, and, well, I mean, first of all, he's just a prolific letter writer. I don't know how this man found time to write all the letters he wrote. Uh, but uh, the depth of the affection for these students and his genuine concern for them is, it's really moving. While Carver was seen as a father figure and role model by many, he was also able to challenge his students to think for themselves and to arrive at their own conclusions. One student found this out firsthand. He wanted to study with the now elderly Carver and had traveled all the way from California. When he arrived at Tuskegee to be introduced, he noticed a lone figure on the campus grounds pulling up weeds. And he asked somebody, who's that? He, oh, that's Dr. Carver. And he was just shattered, you know, like, my God, I came all this way to work with this old man who's out here picking up weeds. But later he, he said, he, he referred to Carver, he said he was like Socrates. He would never answer a question except with another question. You know, he, he, he tried to force his students along a path of inquiry that would result in them arriving at their own answers. And it was very successful. After the passing of the peanut tariff and the following celebrity that came with it, Carver became one of the most famous black men of his time. His department at Tuskegee achieved national attention and respect under his guidance. 
he eventually became known all over the world, and over the decades would come to befriend or come into contact with many famous people, from Henry Ford to Thomas Edison to the Crown Prince of Sweden. World leaders like Mahatma Gandhi and Theodore Roosevelt specifically sought out his advice on various agricultural needs. Yet in spite of his celebrity and respect, Carver was aware that his experience was vastly different from that of the average black person of his time. He was the exception, not the rule. It, it's sad that it would be seen that way. Carver wanted, in kind of a Martin Luther King kind of fashion, judge a man by the content of his character, not the color of his skin. That's what Carver wanted. But he lived in a world that judged people in a very surface way by the color of their skin. And he had to get past that. And he knew it. He understood that. Though Carver had unique, cordial, and friendly relations with whites, he was still subjected to racism throughout his life. His position was also very different in that he experienced bitterness from both blacks and whites, even though he tried to promote racial unity during his life. He wrote years later about the support he had from the white farmers. And in fact, in, in, in one letter, he talks about them being his, well, he referred to them as my home people. But there, there was some bitterness toward Carver for the white friends that he possessed, like Henry Ford. Henry Ford genuinely found Carver, he called Carver one of the most fascinating people he'd ever seen. But the more Carver had connection to whites and the more whites praised and befriended him, the more criticism he took at Tuskegee. You know, today we would say, somebody would say they didn't think he was sufficiently black. But in fact, he had racial pride he, he, he did try to make the argument that one's race should not keep one down, but he was also, I think, sensitive to the, the racial deprivations that fellow Blacks in the South and in the country were forced to endure. In spite of these difficulties, he never openly complained about the racism he encountered and kept his frustrations private. In the late 1930s, after he had become famous throughout the world, his good friend Henry Ford invited him to Michigan to deliver a lecture to a local committee. Imagine this. Carver is there, the only black man. He's to speak to this large white audience in this big dining room. Only he has to take his dinner out in the hallway because these folks don't want to eat with a black man. So he eats his meal out in the hallway. And then he has the grace to go into this room of people who wouldn't sit down and eat with him and engage them as their keynote speaker. How, how many people do you know would have that kind of grace? Carver spent his remaining years at Tuskegee well into old age. His unique relationship with whites even shone through in his twilight years. When he was old and feeble, Henry Ford arranged to have an elevator installed at Tuskegee so that Carver could avoid using the stairs. He would live to the age of 79 when he died in 1943. Many prominent figures paid tribute to him. President Franklin Roosevelt, who had known Carver personally, stated that the world of science has lost one of its most eminent figures. He was buried next to Booker T. Washington at Tuskegee Cemetery. Years later, the George Washington Carver National Monument was established, the first such monument dedicated to a non-president and to a black man. Though Carver is most famous for his innovations with the peanut, his legacy is ultimately not so easily pinned down.
Carver was a complicated man who made contributions in smaller, lesser-known ways. Nonetheless, what he left to the world, and especially to his fellow Blacks, was significant. I think he was a conservationist before conservation was cool. I mean, Carver is really a conservationist uh, in, in, in the most fundamental sense of that word. Carver is trying to conserve the soil and to teach farmers in the South how to engage in multiple crop farming and crop rotation and the uses of green manure and natural manures. He tried to teach people how to make do with the limited resources. I think that's his great contribution to us. He didn't save the South from racism or Southern agriculture. He taught us, if we will listen, how to salvage the Earth's resources and make the most of them and conserve them. I, I recall a, a sentence that he uttered once, a man has no right to come into the world and leave it without having done some positive good behind it. Perhaps Carver's greatest gift to the world was the man himself. As his tombstone reads today, he could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful to the world. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Scott Einig and edited by Jamie Adams. Special thanks to Gary Kremer, of the State Historical Society of Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave us a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Man on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore man and give us a follow. And join us for the season one finale, Loose and Unscripted, where we discuss the highlights and the making of season one.